This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good evening and welcome to Plato's Cave here on 3RRR, 102.7. This is your weekly dose of film criticism. You're listening to Josh Nelson and I'm joined in the cave again this week by... Alex Hellenicholas. And Cerise. Howard. We're talking Melbourne International Film Festival again this week. This is our second of our two-show series. Are we going to call it a series? Let's, let's go for broke. Let's call it a series. Why not? Let's get HBO involved. <laughs> hey, um, so the Melbourne International Film Festival is rolling into its second week. We're going to cover films, hopefully, that uh, have subsequent screenings this week and those that don't. So too bad if you miss them, but we're going to tell you how good they were or otherwise, perhaps... Well, if you haven't seen Duke of Burgundy, you missed out because it played yesterday, last time, played twice during the film festival. Uh, the good news is it will be released locally very soon, so we're not going to talk about it too much except to say Cerise and I are very much in agreement that it is an incredible film. Yeah, absolutely adored that film and look forward to adoring it at uh, subsequent viewing. Adoring it at length. Mm, yeah, a great languorous length. Oh, ladies and butterflies and peculiar rituals. Film. It's Peter Strickland who did Barbarian Sound Studio a few years ago that many people may know, but this is something the same but different for Strickland, um, yeah. bringing his love of sort of 70s art exploitation films to the fore again, but this time in a strikingly different way. Yeah. Oh, Lovely. I love it, I love it. I'm trying to restrain myself from letting go now, but we have to wait when we do a proper... And it is, it is getting a theatrical release, not yes. an entertainment release. I yeah, believe. I think it's probably just a little limited season at Nova. I think. We shall talk at length about Mr Strickland's film then, I believe. Um, another film that uh, is, I think, I believe, getting a local release, but you can actually catch it at MIF tomorrow. It played on the 8th and it's also playing tomorrow, is uh, Hao Xiaoxin's The Assassin. Uh, he's, of course, the Taiwanese director. Um, He's had big films, things like Millennium Mambo, I think, played in MIF in 2001, uh, Flowers of Shanghai, 1998. Um, I mean, this uh, Hao won Best Director at Cannes this year, so this is no small film. It's a beautiful, beautiful movie. It's his um, reimagining, I guess, of uh, the Wuxia film. Is that how you say it? Wuxia? Wuxia? Yeah, you guys, are, I, I, didn't, I didn't do that well. I didn't do that in a noble warrior type way. Um, it's a gorgeous film. It stars Shu Ki um, as the eponymous assassin, and she sort of swoops and fights through beautiful landscapes and beautiful, gorgeous, fiery warrior type things happen. Um, so, yeah, if you miss that at MIF, um, shame on you, but don't worry. We won't punish you too much because you can also catch that on like a release. And instead, what will we focus on? Forbidden Room. Is yes. it Forbidden Room time? It's time for a bit of God, love. <laughs> Oh, there's going to be. Oh, I think there's going to be great outpourings of love here. Are there not, Alex? Oh, there's, Do you care absolutely. to get stuck in first? Because um, I've, I've already shared some of my Guy Madden love on the air on this station previously, but I look forward to getting into a bit of a dialogue about it rather than just my more... <laughs> fan, fan con- yeah. hysterics. <laughs> yeah, well, I often find myself in a bit of a, a monologue with regards Madden. He's the sort of filmmaker who can clear a room um, or uh, create um, oh, fanatical... Uh, lovers of his peculiar brand of cinema, which is so richly informed by all of the cinema of yesteryear, uh, especially the the period around the time of the silent era, and even more so that really peculiar transitional period where sound was just coming in. And uh, 
as soon as you see one of his films, even though there is a certain d- degree of variety in, in the uh, aesthetic uh, approaches to them, you still know a Madden film as soon as it begins. Oh, absolutely. The thing I like about him is even for people that don't like him, there's nobody doing what he does. He's, he's really one of the most unique creative people working in film at the moment i think there's nobody really with the imagination quite like like guy madden um i was spoilt in a way in that i my first experience with his films was possibly his most accessible which was the saddest music in the world with Mm. um uh isabella rossellini uh with the glass clear glass legs full of beer yeah um if that sounds like a random list of words put together you need to see this film because it's it's just beautiful but that very much was a kind of gentle introduction to the strange world of of guy madden um and i think uh, my winnipeg played at myth a few years ago and that that got yeah, he's huge, a myth regular yeah that got a huge huge response i remember people went quite quite berserk the forbidden room though i think is something quite it's certainly not his most accessible film no <laughs> probably his most hypnotic though i think it's um he really sort of dives down into new levels of strangeness and beautifulness. The highlight for me is the uh, the Derriere song. I don't want to go into... I don't want any spoilers. I don't know what we were saying. I don't know whether you can actually have spoilers for this movie. Um, I mean, it's kind of an anthology, I guess. There's a bunch of different stories that weave their way through this film. Familiar faces doing strange things. Udo Kier um, in, in full flight. Multiple times. Uh, Geraldine Chaplin, that, who's now 71. I, I had no idea that she was of that age and she's still spectacular Hmm. um this is a strange and beautiful film well it's films within films within films so the the a bit of background this this project began as a a series of so-called seances at the centre pompidou where madden uh, was installed for about a month a couple of years back where daily he would try to summon up the spirit of a lost film and he would get a the most extraordinary cohort of uh, participants to assist him in this um something that didn't survive into this peculiar compilation film the forbidden room is the ectoplasm that i believe graced the set day in day out when he was conducting his seances uh but so all, all of these little stories and they're all nested within one another so trying to determine which is the earth story you could say is almost impossible though even though the film does have a clear beginning there's a, a first story it's not so much a story it's more a little short educational film about how to bathe uh, <laughs> um but these are all films that were once meant to have been made or were made and then lost or partially made and, and somehow have fallen foul of history. And uh, so Madden has tried to reimagine them uh, based on uh, some could just be oral history or it could be um, actual uh, connection through people who are descendants of folk involved in the films that have got lost that he's recreated so descendants of jean vigo or of, of charlie chaplin or countless uh filmmakers from all around the world so one of my favorite films within this film is based on a mikio narusa film who's recently the subject of a cinematech retrospective and uh, a film called hypnotic oh this is even the title is so evocative and peculiar the strength of a mustache this is one of the udo kia <laughs> numbers within it of course it's the udo kia yeah. number <laughs> Yeah, Udo gives good moustache. <laughs> we knew he would. <laughs> this is so. I, I think this film has has been presented in a number of places around the world without that sort of background information, which would make it all the more mystifying. I think for anyone seeing it, wondering why on earth it keeps skipping from bizarre story to even more bizarre story. 
but that, that's where this began uh, as, as a sort of a project that was going to, these films are going to wind up online. There are all sorts of, uh, and, and I think in galleries and as installation art, but I'm so glad he made a, a, this hypnotic, bizarre film out of them. And there's one other thing that really must be said about it. I mean, he's always had a, a, a trademark knack of making films look as if they were actually 80, 90 years old and then have just been rotting somewhere ever since. In this, he's used some extraordinary digital trickery to simulate uh, actual, I think, nitrate films just uh, melting in in a manner that is really mesmerising and incredibly beautiful. Bill Morrison is the master of this with actual material film. Madden has somehow taken that Bill Morrison aesthetic uh, and woven it into, throughout this film, just at intervals, the image just dissolves and breaks up in incredibly liquid, beautiful ways. I think it's stunningly stunningly beautiful it's a really immersive experience this film i think it's um it's perhaps a cliche to say that you have to see it on the big screen but i I couldn't think of anything more pointless in a way than watching this on a on a small television the ectoplasm um aspect is something that i haven't heard before and it's a beautiful segue josh into our next film love Oh, yes, it is. Oh, boy. I was going to talk about the fact that I have already booked in that screening of The Forbidden Room, which is screening this coming Sunday. I think it's at 4 o'clock. And I'm picking it over uh, Macbeth, which, if you haven't got your tickets, are probably selling out right as we speak. That was just announced today, the Australian premiere, I believe. Of, yeah, of Justin Kurzel's Justin Justin Macbeth on 4 o'clock this Sunday. So forget that. It's getting a release later. Go and see Guy Madden. You may not get another chance. You may not get a chance to see this film either, um, unless you see it at the festival has one more screening, and that is Gaspar Noé's Love in Vivid 3D. I mentioned at the end of last week's show that it was one I was looking forward to. Um, It's fair to say it met a number of my expectations. Look, I have to say, this is one of those things that you only really see at festivals, and it's one of those ones that I'll be talking about in years to come, because it was such a sublime experience seeing a film by Gaspar Noé, but one which is basically about sex and sexuality in Vivid 3D at Hoyt's Melbourne Central, of all places. Um, It's not the kind of film you normally see at a multiplex, a sold-out multiplex session. I was probably in the minority. I thought this was a really fascinating film. In some ways, I think the easy comparison is to look at it in relation to, say, Derek Gianfranchi's Blue Valentine, because it's a... It's about a relationship that's crumbling and it's about a, uh, a man looking back to an idealised earlier sexual relationship, in this case with another woman, and it cuts between these two time periods and keeps sort of shifting its guys in, in terms of uh, playing with memory and, and reflecting on this, this desire or this lack of this earlier relationship which has somehow passed this man by. I think it's quite fascinating in terms of the way Noah plays with artifice and reality in this film, um, particularly given the mise-en-scene is so loaded in terms of its um, surface appeal and the lead character is really unlikable. And I think this is one of the the negative reactions that a lot of people had to this film was they automatically linked the viewpoint or the worldview of the lead character, who is pretty despicable and very chauvinistic in in a number of ways, with the filmmaker's position, which I didn't get. I think, actually, Gaspar Noé is giving us quite a vicious attack on this type of masculinity, and it's no coincidence that the the lead male is an American filmmaking student who's gone to live in Paris, whose favourite film is, you know, 2001 A Space Odyssey. Everything he does and and talks about is these sort of preposterous clichés, and I think, in some ways, um, it's... 
it's Noe's attack on cinema, and particularly American cinema, in the fact that he's filmed this in 3D for no other reason. There's really only one shot which um, adopts or appropriates the 3D technology, and that is to literally come on the audience's face. That is, we get a, we get a come shot aimed at the camera. And I think it's, it's his joke, really, at the audience's expense. But there is more than that. I don't, I don't think it's just a, sort of a gimmick film. So, look, if, this, if I'm selling it, if this is the type of film that may appeal to you, uh, you may have to jump in the standby queue, but it does have one more screening. So jump onto uh, the MIF website to check out the details for that one. Oh, so it's over to me and to talk of the pearl button, which is not a euphemism for something sexual, <laughs> apparently. Or is it? Uh, I, let's find out. Let's find out. No, well, actually, um, <laughs> this is... A, <laughs> A film about rather serious matters, actually. Uh, in It's from a Chilean director. Actually, is he, in fact, Chilean? It's very much concerned about matters at Chilean. Patricio Guzman made an absolutely astonishing film a few years ago called Nostalgia for the Light, in which he drew links between stardust and other cosmic matters and uh, life on Earth down to the level of especially focusing on uh, goings-on in Chile during the Pinochet regime and the, uh, the Atacama Desert, the driest place on Earth, where countless victims of Pinochet's horrific, uh, cruel uh, and murderous regime were disappeared. And uh, a few years on, uh, Guzman is still just as, um, I'd say, actually obsessed with coming to terms with the disappeared people of Chile's fairly recent past. And in the Pearl Button, he's actually more interested in the waters around Chile. Now, Chile has a coastline that runs about 4,000 kilometres and that's a lot of water around there, and there's this whole archipelago of islands. I suppose that's of islands is probably redundant. Uh, there are indigenous people there that uh, much seems to much is, is consistent with a lot of indigenous people around the world. First people, seemingly, they had a pretty hard time once uh, white settler types muscled in and. Um, and by the time that the uh, the Americans had uh, thrown off Salvador Allende's uh, democratically elected socialist regime and uh, installed this nasty dictator, the indigenous people were really quite far removed from their traditional ways of life, which had them deeply connected with these waters around these islands. Now, it so happens that Pinochet, in all likelihood, dispatched a lot of people, not just in the desert, but in these waters as well. So this film is, is really just finding more interesting links between uh, eternity. Um, I mean, the, the, the reason for actually for things being so cosmically, uh, why he's so interested in the skies is that the, in the Atacama Desert there are a whole lot of dishes seeking signs of life and, and, uh, uh, and mapping the universe. So, uh, but he's, always, he's at pains and nostalgia for the light to remind us that we are all descended from this, that the water that is so critical to this whole story in his new film actually came from... Uh, the heavens as well, that uh, a comet, an asteroid, something collided with the Earth, brought water to us, and eventually we had Pinochet and later some trying to come to terms with the horrors of that period. So, again, a, a really fascinating, beautiful, but upsetting essay film from somebody who's pretty well a master not just of the genre, but I think it's because he's so impassioned about this subject. Uh, we're even reminded at the start of the film that what sparked his interest in all this was that even when he was very young, people were in the habit of disappearing then, and the oceans actually claimed a, a school schoolboy friend of his, not through actually sinister means necessarily, but uh, 
that link with the ocean and disappearing folk was made early on. So a really fascinating film which has one more screening at MIF on Sunday the 16th, the final day of the festival, in fact, at four in the afternoon. Well... Another film that I want to talk about is called The Liar. This is um, one of those magical little myth program discoveries. You know, you just sort of find yourself buried for hours seemingly in the myth guide. And I found this film. It says that it's a South Korean uh, black comedy. And I think I like, I like films from Korea. I like black comedy. This looks interesting. I'll give that a whirl. Um, I've got a pretty dark sense of humour. And even for me, at a stretch, I really struggle to find this funny in any way at all. But I have to say, this is one of the, my real delights of the festival. This was such a, 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 a treasure of a film to find. Um, it's by uh, a director called Kim Dong-myung. And it stars a woman called Kim Kyobi. Um, as the eponymous liar, she was in uh, Jury um, in 2013 and The King of Pigs in uh, 2012, both of which have played at MIF previously. Um, I guess the, it kind of wears its heart on its sleeve in terms of its title. She plays the liar. She um, is a young woman in a kind of crappy jobs, popping pimples in a pretty run-down kind of beauty parlour for rich ladies. Um, and she just lies to people and to people who work in shops to kind of create this facade of a more affluent, successful lifestyle. And the film is effectively about how that crumbles. Um, it's a really bleak, brutal film. Um, but honestly, it's one of the most scathing and explicit takedowns of consumer culture that I've seen. It's what, for me, I, I thought a lot about Fight Club. It's what Fight Club kind of circles around. But this film is about it. Um, it devastated me. Um, it was just so effective. It's, it's a Rottweiler of, of a film. Once it's, got its, once it's got its teeth in, it just doesn't let go. It's not just challenging. I mean, it really gets quite depressing and bleak, but it's just politically so hard-hitting. Um, it's just a, a wonderful, wonderful film. Three, triple, the movie. Sounds very <laughs> exciting, doesn't it? Um, this is a, a film that's screening as part of the Masters and Restorations. This is a, a documentary of sorts that was filmed from the, the late 70s. It actually began as a as a thesis film from an NYU student, Howard Bruckner. And in fact, this has, as part of the crew, a very young Jim Jarmusch doing sound. And it's about this guy who's following uh, Burroughs around and Burroughs cohorts, like Allen Ginsberg, among many others. Um, just to give us a sense of the writer, there's a little bit of a, a backstory, but n- not a great deal. There's um, sequences in, that, in which Burroughs tries to explicate his cut-up technique and his various um, approaches to, to writing, to drugs. Um, and then the film starts to take a, a bit of a dark turn. I was—I guess—I wasn't expecting him to really go too much into the um, the murder of his wife, Joan. Although the film actually lingers on this for quite some time, and it's it's almost strange to see Burroughs talk about this event, which had such a significant effect on his life and his and his work, in such a casual manner. I think that was almost. It was off-putting or, or disarming in many ways. And then having Ginsburg talk about it as well, having sort of been witness to it and, and having giving a, a kind of a slightly different take on what transpired on that very fateful night in Mexico many years ago. Look, I think this is a film probably more targeted towards Burroughs fans. I'm a massive fan of, of 
Burroughs' work around the time of, of Naked Lunch. Although after David Cronenberg's Naked Lunch, everything related to Burroughs is somehow filtered through Peter Weller and the kind of Cronenbergian mugwump jism cacophony that, that is his wonderful Naked Lunch. But I do think there's, there's some definite points of interest here that sort of, I guess, reinforce the importance of this being restored. The big question is, is it metal? Is it metal? Because I'll tell you what's metal. Cerise, tell us about Deathgasm. I thought you were going to tell. I'll tell you about Deathgasm. Let's talk about Deathgasm. Yeah, we might need to talk, it, talk, talk this <laughs> Let's through. Let's talk this through. Let's have some talking time. Yeah, New Zealand. This uh, the strange wave of splatter comedies coming out of New Zealand again. Uh, Peter Jacks, it, well, it was a cottage industry. Uh, anyway, I suppose it still is the New Zealand film industry generally. Outside of Hobbit-sized, uh, not Hobbit-sized, Lord of the Rings epic um, <laughs> adventures. Yes, I th- actually, I think there's, there's doubtless a wingnut uh, films connection with this too, because everyone that's ever been involved in New Zealand film has worked with Peter Jackson by now, surely at least once. And there's definitely some special effects, old school wizardry in this film of the Peter Jackson circa Brain Dead, Meet the Feebles, and especially Bad Taste era. Real old school, uh, actual gluggy, messy, vivid red, splatty, a pain to tidy up afterwards sort of gore. Um, and lots of heavy metal. Um, some fictitious town, Grey Point, uh, sounds very similar to Greymouth, a, uh, a rather uh, inauspicious West Coast South Island town, uh, where a couple of metalheads form a band, summon some demonic force. Uh, there's not a, look. There's not a plot, Alex. I mean, <laughs> what, what am I even? I'm looking at you expectantly. Yeah. Like, tell me. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. They play the devil's music or the demon's music. I should say a hymn to summon uh, some demonic figure, and there are some other human demonic figures with the usual Faustian packs They're only too keen to make if only they can somehow. Oh, God, okay, I've lost all interest in even trying to s- summarise this film. It's, it's exceedingly it's not, silly. It is, and I think it's proudly silly. It, it reminds me, uh, in a way, I mean, I guess maybe it's an obvious point of comparison, but um, Metalocalypse, I don't know mm. if you guys have seen Metalocalypse, I, but it's a what I liked about Metalocalypse and what I like about this is that it, it feels like the kind of narrative sprung forth from the imagination of the characters whose story it's telling like it's very much something that is scribbled in the back of an exercise book in a class that they don't really understand what's going on um it's proudly dumb i think is is a fair way to put it i love that i love that it's really explicitly um targeting that kind of 80s satanic panic stuff i think that there's obviously a retro vibe to this film but for me that's the strongest component in that there's a very specific kind of fear of heavy metal music that really feels quite quaint in 2015 like the uh, the idea that the worst thing in the world that could happen to you is that your child could be into into heavy metal music is quite quite touching and lovely trick or treat that was a great film yeah yeah it had various metal luminaries in Uh it i remember that being very silly as well and uh, skippy from family ties if i'm not mistaken was the protagonist (gasps) in that yeah you're both looking at me shocked is this the first time I've had a family ref- family ties reference. Surely and it won't be the last. Thomas, I'm sure. Thomas, I'm so sorry. Thomas Caldwell leaves for a couple of weeks, and the family ties references begin in earnest. I have a, a question about Deathgasm, and I've yet to see it, but I am intrigued. And this is something that transpired on the social medias uh, last night. I think after the most recent screening, and this was a question that was raised about whether there was any homophobic innuendo in the film. And apparently, I think the director's out here at the moment, made some comic in the introduction, which someone on social media clearly took umbrage with and then um, sort of extended that to the film itself. I was wondering your thoughts on this, because this was something that sort of caught my eye on Twitter last night. 
Oh, God, look, I think the film's so dumb that um, it's hard to be offended by any one thing. It's, it's I can't take it seriously. Yeah, I, I certainly wasn't shocked or no. appalled by but, anything in it. And no, um, yeah, nothing. Uh, outside of the, the fact that it was desperately trying to shock and appall me. Yeah, right. Um, it's a midnight movie and yeah. everything that that... that kind of genre of film I think entails it's perfect for a, for a film festival midnight it's the kind of film to watch with a couple of beers tongue firmly in cheek oh I think so yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, look I really enjoyed it I and think it was silly yeah. and it was fun and you know I mean the, you know, people getting murdered with sex toys and mm. I mean you know <laughs> as you do everything you want in a film really and as New Zealandiness is not downplayed in the slightest so all those wonderful accents of people from my homeland it's quite refreshing for me to hear that um, not being masked in any way whatsoever those accents do come thick and fast in it but there's been all these other kiwi splatter films in the last couple of years and this one isn't actually if anything quite as tasteless as uh fresh meat that's Um, amazing this uh film that uh takes long-standing myths around maori cannibalism uh very seriously except in as much as it takes it extremely tongue-in-cheek and it's a very entertaining film it's not quite as silly. Well, no, it is as silly as this, but it's it's somehow better. Even Housebound last year had yeah. that wonderful cheese grater scene. That yeah, wonderful well, New Zealand. Well, let's not forget Black Sheep. Oh, that's let's a not few, forget. A few more years back. It but, is, yeah, yeah. But suddenly every year there's at least one of these films making its way <laughs> actually into cinemas, not some, going straight to some, video. Something to be proud of, New Zealand. Look, the horror, um, the uh, Night Shift program this year has been fantastic. Some really diverse stuff tonally so we have you know the kind of fun midnight movie stuff of uh deathgasm and then more serious things i guess something like spring which i think i mentioned last week um in passing that i just love and i think that's getting a local release as well so we'll talk about that perhaps in a show in the future um but karen kasama's the invitation i'd love to mention just in passing i've always sort of felt a little bit bewildered by the karen kasama love um i'm very supportive of women directors but karen kasama is somebody that I've struggled to really sing the praises of. I'm not that big a fan of the Eon Flux adaptation. I didn't like Jennifer's body. Um, when I heard that there was a new Karen Kasama film, I confess I was not full with excitement and joy. But perhaps that's the best way for me to have approached this film. Um, it's just really solid horror. Um, it's In a way, it's something that it's not really anything that you haven't seen before. It's a, a dinner party kind of turns into a sort of cult indoctrination ceremony um, as it brings together a separated couple who endured a tragedy with their new partners and they kind of hook up with old friends um, and they hook up with each other um, and they all kind of get back in contact. But it's, yeah, it's clear that there's this cult indoctrination thing going on and it's all very kind of weird. But what I love about this is that it builds a horror film around social politeness. Mm. When you're in a social situation that is clearly not right but everybody pretends that it's okay um, that's what this film does, and it does it in a really, really, really spooky way. Today's the last day that that's playing. Um, if you get a chance, I'm not sure what time it could be playing now. Wouldn't that be freaky? Ooh, horror movies. Ooh. <laughs> People are listening to us inside oh the my cinema. Gosh. It's cut, the call is coming from inside the house. <laughs> uh, so, Breaking the Monster. We'll go back to things metal, but a doco. This is from the Backbeat program. I, I was somehow drawn to this. Uh, I, I remember seeing a clip a couple of years back, went viral quickly, of these three little African-American kids in Times Square playing some killer metal and um, and just, just going off a little three-piece. But I never thought about them again. However, uh, a canny documentary filmmaker thought there might be a story in this, obviously, and quickly got onto it. Indeed, an extraordinary story. And you'd think this is surely 
uh, fiction. And the, the music industry we know is pretty venal uh, at the best of times, but uh, how, how low it will stoop, but also how, how, how singularly it will fail to um, acknowledge just how ludicrous it is. In this uh, really quite entertaining documentary, Breaking the Monster, um, these three kids uh, barely in, they're not even in high school yet, are being courted by major labels with million dollar deals, huge festival bills they're being invited to play on. Uh, it, it's all snowballing. There's this Svengali figure who's materialised out of nowhere who has a, a history of being uh, integral to the, the launch of Welcome Back Cotter back in the day. <laughs> but then also various music industry uh, heavies he helped launch. The Jonas Brothers, I don't know who they are. They look pretty. I gather they've sold millions of records. He's got a lot of form. He, he knows that these three kids are the, the next big thing or a next big thing. So the, the, we get all these farcical scenes of these three kids who really just want to play Grand Theft Auto sitting in on meetings where their brand is being discussed by music label people and PR agents. And it's it's just um, quite stomach-churning in a way, but also very funny. And these kids uh, then sort of get it. They sort of know it's stupid, but they, they're also, of course, they're kids. But they actually are pretty mean musicians. They, you know, they've really got some, some pretty good riffs. They're, they're, there are a few concerns about whether they'll actually be able to record anytime soon. They need to because there's all this momentum. But uh, is the singer's voice going to break? Is it, it's a, <laughs> there are some real, real problems that uh, don't uh, afflict that many other bands on the up and up. Uh, but look, it's, it's hugely entertaining and is a, a nice companion piece with a, a film that that title echoes being the Metallica documentary of some years ago, Some Kind of Monster, which was also tremendously entertaining. Um, uh, extremely uncomfortable viewing occasionally, watching those dingbats uh, sort of become... Madonnas. Yeah, yeah, just get a few reality checks finally. Uh, but this, uh, yeah, the, the two back to back, I think, fantastic double bill. Um, and this is called Breaking the Monster simply because also their hit single is all about monsters. It's, it's rather wonderful, a very endearing documentary that may have another screening yet, I think. I'll we check could, that. We could segue from monsters to monsters of a different kind. Now that I think about it, that's not great. Um, Thomas Caldwell, who I should have mentioned at the start of the show, <laughs> is a monster. He is not, he's not with us, but he did curate the uh, the shorts programs at this year's festival, and I managed to, to track down two of them last Friday night: the animation and the WTF. Now, Cerise, we were both sitting in on the animation shorts that we were. There are some pretty great films amongst them. They were. Do you, do you want to single any Look, out? I'm going to. And actually, the the short film awards were held last night, and two of the animation shorts that that came away with prizes, um, a Russian film called We Can't Live Without the Cosmos, which was a beautiful film about two cosmonauts um, who are training for a, a mission, and it's it's done in this wonderfully childlike style of animation. But there's there's real heart in in that, and that well, that came away with the best uh, animation short prize. And the other one uh, which was awarded last night was Brendan Fletcher's, Brendan Fletcher of Mad Bastards fame, the great Australian film of recent times, and his short film Oscar Wilde's The Nightingale and the Rose, which in terms of its visual style looked like Graham Bass and Egon Sheila went at it quite wildly. And this is the, the product. It's a stunning, visually stunning film. And with a, with a great voice cast and, and musical cast, Sarah Blasco does the music, Jeffrey Rush, Mia Vasakowska, David Wenham. It's sort of like the 
who's who of, a, of Australian voices doing an Oscar wild tale. And that, I mean, both of those really stood out for me amongst the animation category. Yeah, me too, actually. Yeah, the, the Nightingale is extremely beautiful. Um, and there's, I think you could throw in uh, something a bit Gustav Klimt-y in there yeah, as well. Absolutely. Uh, it's all this bejeweledness, uh, but extremely vivid colours. Uh, something a touch psychedelic about it as well. It would have been well at home in the psychedelic strand of this year's festival program too. Uh, they were yeah, two of the strongest works of mine as well. There's a really lovely one. The one that made me laugh out loud constantly was that. Um, what was it called? The Lonely something. There was, there was a split screen. There was a man on one side, a hamster on the other. Two films about loneliness. Two films about loneliness. Yeah, I, I laughed and laughed and laughed. There's something very quaintly English of a certain uh, hilarious miserableness uh, about it. And uh, a certain... Who was the voice talent? I, I'd be curious to know. I'm sure I've heard this. This particular sort of delivery, there's a northern accent to it, which... Uh, I can easily find amusing if it is parodically miserable, as it was in, in this film. But there's something very sweet, too, when, when man and hamster find one another. Yeah, it's a UK-German production. The, um, I'm just looking now. The directors, William Bishop Stevens and Christopher Eels. And, uh, yeah, it's got a wonderful punchline, that film. Um, and speaking of punchlines and also New Zealand films, um, the WTF shots, the, or as Thomas likes to say, weird, terrifying and funny, <laughs> although we all know really what WTF stands for, the, the opening film is probably the best non-Monty Python, Monty Python-esque sketch I've seen in a long while, um, involving um, knights in shining armour running through a, a forest chasing down a, a sound, a, a calling for, for help, and it, it would not seem out of place in uh, Monty Python The Holy Grail. It was a great way to, to get that kicked off, actually, and that also had some very manic um, and also Fight Club-esque uh, short in it called Man Oh Man. This is a really strange... Uh, this film played at, at Cannes, and it's a strange combination of, of puppeteering that begins in a, a scene of primal therapy in which one man sort of gives birth by vomiting up his inner primal self and they run ragged around a town. It was stunning, and you know, judging by the audience reaction, um, yeah, that was pretty loved too. Uh, the, both the, in fact, all of the shorts um, are playing again this week, but both the animation and the WTF are back to back this coming. Friday night, so you might want to check those both out. Well, the 14th show also includes the uh, final screening of B-movie Lust and Sound in West Berlin, 1979 to 1989. This is a documentary in the backbeat strand um, about the Berlin post-punk scene, as I suspect the title of the film may indicate. There's a lot of footage in here that's just worth its weight in post-punk gold. Obviously, fair bit of people like Nick Cave and Blixer Bargeld. Um, Shout-outs to people like David Bowie, Tilda Swinton, Keith Herring, uh, New Order. And um, One of my favourite moments is a little shout-out to the legendary Christiana F. Um, this is probably not the best documentary I've ever seen in terms that, um, of its narrator. It's narrated by a... Um, it follows a story and um, a voiceover of a uh, British-born Berliner called Mark Reeder who moved to Berlin during this period. Um, a lot of the descriptions I've heard of this film call it a, a mixtape. Whatever you want to make of that, go for it. Um, but the, the the visuals, I mean, the archive footage in this documentary is just unparalleled. I've not seen a documentary that is this exciting just in terms of the material that it's actually dug up from this remarkable period, not just in music history, but, but from world history, this kind of insight into what was happening in this strange city in a strange place at this strange time with these beautiful, strange people making incredible art. Um, really, really fantastic 
On which period precisely? Uh, 79 to 89. 79 to 89. Mm-hmm. Does that encompass the time when uh, Andrzej Zulowski was in there making Possession? I think it would. That was 80, Something 81. Like that, yeah. 81 that film was released. In the film? No. Oh. Um, but mm. we, can, we can just tack that. It's a mixtape. We can add our own. Just devote a whole show tape. to Possession sometime. Don't, don't tease me <laughs> so. Every show is Possession, if you ask me. In my mind, it's what I'm thinking of. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR-FM in Melbourne, Australia. You're listening to Plato's Cave here on 3RRR. I want to flag a film that I saw. In fact, it was the first film I saw at this year's festival, and it does have another screening coming up on Sunday, the 16th of August at 4pm. This is one of those ones where I just took a gamble, and I have to say I think it paid off. This is a film called Under Electric Clouds. This is a Russian-Ukrainian-Polish co-production, and it's from, I believe it's the son of a famous filmmaker. This is um, Alexei German Jr., is that how you say it, Cerise? Yeah, Yeah, Senior died only a year or so ago, but there was a a three-week... Um, season at the Cinematheque the year before last, I think. And his, uh, actually, the, the, the son helped complete his father's uh, magnum opus, Hard to Be a God, which screened at MIF last year, possibly the muddiest film of all time. And I'm still trying desperately to hunt it down, having missed it at last year's. But the visual style of this film is really incredible. I mean, this is a masterclass in moody cinematography. It's set or it opens into a semi futuristic Russia in 2017. Surrounding, I guess, the a building site of an unfinished kind of architectural monolith, and then slowly traces back to these various characters attached to this this part of the land, both in its former incarnation as a sort of a museum in terms of immigrant workers who have been hired to to complete the work, and then have sort of been ditched as the as the programs fallen on as the uh, buildings fallen on hard times. This is a a really strange, mesmerising film that, that initially feels like it's going to be a series of of short segments and then you start to realize that all these elements are interconnected this has a, a, a incredible sort of realist tone to it as well and culminates in a fellini-esque sort of final final segment i, th- I highly recommend it and it's definitely a film given the the emphasis on the visuals that would be wonderful seeing on a, on a big screen does it have a pumping Giorgio Moroda soundtrack josh uh, not to my knowledge, sadly. Although I think does it have quite a moody score. So but you're a tough judge, Cerise. <laughs> Everything should have a Giorgio Moroder score. The big question. Uh, I will, well, I'll bring things back to Berlin just briefly because I spoke about this film at some length on Smart Arts last week. But a shout out to uh, Australian chap Brody Higgs for his film Elixir, which is a, a curious film indeed, a most unusual Australian production in that it is set in Berlin and is an exercise in joyous anachronism. It concerns uh, a lot of the original Paris surrealist group um, being mysteriously transplanted into contemporary Berlin. Actually, that doesn't happen as a narrative event. They're just simply there, uh, along with Malcolm McLaren and uh, one or two other key historical figures from the art world in the 20th century. And uh, André Breton is uh, running some sort of beautiful artist residence, not behaving like the dictatorial prat that by many accounts he actually was as the so-called Pope of Surrealism, given to excommunicating his colleagues at the drop of a hat. It's just a very curious film. It's very beautifully shot. I covet the particular residence that features most prominently in this film, this this place of Bretons, which was actually furnished by many a Berlin-based artist of the current day to give it some sense of a lived-in, uh, lived-in-ness. 
and there's uh, a couple of sort of rogue characters. There's uh, principally a, a, a woman who I think is supposed to have been some sort of Bosnian. Uh, I'm not sure what she's escaped necessarily, but she's she's this um, sort of locus of desire in the film. Breton yearns for her much as he once yearned for Nadia in his book, but also yearns for the recently deceased within the film, Jacques Vache, who was a Dadaist who died uh, under... Well, from the a distance, uh, remove of history, uh, comical circumstances. It's involved in orgy. Um, you know those Bohemians back in the day. <laughs> but there's uh, a running theme to that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but so th- this film is heavily versed and, and steeped in the law, uh, the, the folklore of, of this the original surrealist group and the Dadaists and. Um, but it just transplants it very peculiarly into the current day in Berlin. And it's, uh, I think it would probably... Uh, there'd be a lot of people out there who'd find it insufferably pretentious. I found it sufferably pretentious. <laughs> I really quite liked it. I want to give a shout-out to two of my highlights of the festival. Sadly, they don't have any more screenings, but I do recommend tracking them down if you can. One, possibly my favourite documentary, and I got quite emotional, strangely, during this. This is a film called Raiders, and it's a documentary about the those former 11-year-olds who decided to make a shot-for-shot remake back in the day of Raiders of the Lost Ark. This film resurfaced about 10 or 12 years ago on the back of supposedly Eli Roth (laughs) um, finding it and passing it to Harry Knowles and and passing it on to Steven Spielberg. But this is actually a really poignant documentary about these these guys who are now in their 40s and they never finished the film. There was one sequence that they didn't shoot and that was that remarkable sequence involving the plane and the, the burly Nazi fist fight and the guy getting sort of chopped up by the propellers so they decide to try and regroup and they've sort of parted ways and there's various kind of emotional baggage between them all to film and pump all their money into this very extravagant sequence and it has this sense of not only this interesting character study but also i guess this this poignancy of these 40 year old men trying to reclaim this wonderful sense of nostalgia that they had as children and knowing that they can't really recapture that and also the fact that they're they're now trying to do serious filmmaking, where back in the day it was sort of, you know, cotton wool and, and, and cardboard sets. I, I found this a really touching uh, documentary, and I hope it does find a, a distributor down the line. The other one I wanted to give a shout-out, just because it was a striking visual work, is Tokyo Olympia. That's screened over the week, and that's the Kon Ichikawa film about the 1964 uh, Tokyo Olympics. And this is a visual masterpiece. I mean, it has a, a strange sort of patriotic sentiment. I mean, this is post-World War II Japan. This is, this is their great moment to sort of show off to the world and proclaim the wonders of of peace and the all the accoutrements of the olympic movement but the slow motion cinematography and this of, of bodies in motion and the strange way in which he captures these bodies and and segments them and sort of isolates the camera onto different parts of the the body and plays with sound for example is uh, some of the track sequences he removes the audio of the um of the crowd and all we get is like the scratching of the feet on the track and so on really really remarkable and easily one of the 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 highlights of the festival for mine we haven't talked a lot about the um the retrospective aspects of the program because there's some really strong stuff we're running out of time so i think very quick shout out to enter the void we've already talked about gaspar noe but that's playing on the 12th Uh, mad dog morgan that we spoke about a couple of weeks ago that's playing also on the 12th um as for newer stuff um i 
I'm pretty excited about The Witch, which is playing again on the 14th. That's that's big on my list. Josh, you talked about Pasolini last week, and I think there's a chance to catch that on the 15th. And, of course, Oppenheimer's Doco, The Look of Silence, is one with a big asterisk next to it for me too. And I'm tremendously excited about a film. It hasn't had its first screening yet, let alone its second, and that's uh, Peter Greenaway's film about Eisenstein's adventures in Mexico, where well, I'd actually struggle to pronounce the part of Mexico that's part of the title of this film, uh, Guanajuato or something like that. Uh, but uh, there's a famous um, famous business of Eisenstein being this very celebrated director post-Battleship Potemkin, uh, being a pioneer of Soviet montage, um, but by degrees falling afoul of the Russian authorities, trying to make it in Hollywood, failing, heading to Mexico and making uh, Viva Mexico. Um, and en route, uh, so to speak, uh, Lou, that's a, unfortunate... Um, he, he he went there a 33 year old virgin and um and the russian authorities are appalled at peter greenway's barefaced cheek in uh more than suggesting that eisenstein was homosexual uh greenway originally meant to make two films on this and the second one suffice to say will not be funded by the russians anytime <laughs> soon and i am dying to see this i'm dying to see greenway's trademark flair lavished on this story and i'm hoping it is every bit as queer as i want it to be and likewise i'll be seeing that with you on Wednesday night, I believe. Excellent. Looking forward to it. I think that's all we've got time for. Kids, that wraps up our Melbourne International Film Festival specials for another year. Thomas Colbert will be back in the cave for our Radiothon show next week. You've been listening to Josh Nelson, Cerise Howard, Alexandra, Helen Nicholas. A massive thank you to Steve Phillips for helping us out on the panels. Good night. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.